Chapter 34 of Brigands of the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. Brigands of the Moon by Ray Cummings. Chapter 34. It seemed, with that first shot from the enemy, that a great relief came to us, an apprehension fallen away. We had anticipated this moment for so long, dreaded it. I think all our men felt it. A shout went up. Harmless. It was not that. But our building withstood it better than I had feared. It was a flash from a large electronic projector mounted on the deck of the brigand ship. It stabbed up from the shadows across the valley at the foot of the opposite crater wall, a beam of vaguely fluorescent light, simultaneously the searchlight vanished. The stream of electrons caught the front face of our main building in a six-foot circle. It held a few seconds, vanished, then stabbed again, and still again. Three bolts, a total, I suppose, of nine or ten seconds. I was standing with Grantline at a front window. We had rigged an oblong of insulated fabric like a curtain. We stood peering, holding the curtain cautiously aside. The ray struck some twenty feet away from us. Harmless, the men shouted it with derision. But Grantline swung on them. Don't get that idea. An interior signal panel was beside Grantline. He called the duty men in the instrument room. It's over. What are your readings? The bombarding electrons had passed through the outer shell of the building's double wall and had been absorbed in the rarefied, magnetized air current of the Erentz circulation. Like poison in a man's veins, reaching his heart, the free alien electrons had disturbed the motors. They accelerated, then retarded, pulsed unevenly, and drew added power from the reserve tanks. But they had normalized at once when the shot was passed. The duty man's voice sounded from the grid in answer to Grantline's question. Five degrees colder in your building. Can't you feel it? The disturbed, weakened Iran's system had allowed the outer cold to radiate through a trifle. The walls had had a trifle extra explosive pressure from the air. A strain, but that was all. It was probably their most powerful single weapon, Greg, said Grantline. I nodded. Yes, I think so. I had smashed the real giant with its ten-mile range. The ship was only two miles from us. But it seemed as though this projector were exerted to its distance limit. I had noticed on the deck only one of this type. The others, paralyzing rays and heat rays, were less deadly. Grantline commented, We can withstand a lot of that bombardment if we stay inside. The ray striking a man outside would penetrate his erense suit within a few seconds, we could no doubt. We had, however, no intention of going out unless for dire necessity. Even so, said Grantline, a hand shield would hold it off for a certain length of time. We had an opportunity a moment later to test our insulated shields. The bolt came again. It darted along the front face of the building, caught our window, and clung. The double window shelves were our weakest points. The sheet of flashing Arendt's current was transparent. We could see through it as though it were glass. It moved faster, but was thinner at the windows than the walls. We feared the bombarding electrons might cross it, 
penetrate the inner shell, and, like a lightning bolt, enter the room. We dropped the curtain corner. The radiance of the bolt was dimly visible. A few seconds, then it vanished again, and behind the shield we had not felt a tingle. Harmless. But our power had been drained nearly an aeron, to neutralize the shock to the Arant's current. Grantline said, If they keep that up, it would be a question of whose power supply would last longer, and it would not be ours. You saw our lights fade when the bolt was striking. But the brigands did not know we were short of power, and to fire the projector with a continuous bolt would, in thirty minutes, perhaps, have exhausted their own power reserve. I won't answer them, Grantline declared. Our game is to sit defensive, conserve everything, let them make the leading moves. We waited half an hour, but no other shot came. The valley floor was patched with earthlight and shadow. We could see the vague outline of the brigand ship backed up at the foot of the opposite crater wall. The form of its dome over the illuminated deck was visible, and the line of its tiny hull ovals. On the rocks near the ship, helmet lights of prowling brigands occasionally showed. Whatever activity was going on down there, we could not see with the naked eye. Grantline did not use our telescope at first. To connect it, even for local range, drew on our precious ammunition of power. Some of the men urged that we search the sky with the telescope. Was our rescue ship from Earth coming? But Grantline refused. We were in no trouble yet, and every delay was to our advantage. Commander, where shall I put these helmets? A man came wheeling a pile of helmets on a small truck. At the manual port in the other building. Our weapons and outside equipment were massed at the main exit locks of the large building but we might want to go out through smaller locks, too. Grantline sent helmets there. Suits were not needed, as most of us were garbed in them now. Snap was still in the workshop. I went there during the first half hour of the attack. Ten of our men were busy there, with the little flying platforms and the fabric shields. How goes it, Snap? Almost all ready. He had six of the platforms, including the one we had already used, and more than a dozen hand shields. At a squeeze, all of us could ride on these six little vehicles. We might have to ride them. We planned that, in the event of disaster to the buildings, we could at least escape in this fashion. Food supplies and water were now being placed at the ports. Depressing preparations? Are buildings uninhabitable? A rush out and away, abandoning the treasure? Grantline had never mentioned such a contingency, but I noticed, nevertheless, that preparations were being made. Snap's voice was raised over the clang of the workmen bolting the gravity plates of the last platform. Only that one projector, Greg? They gave us four blasts, but just the one projector, their strongest. He grinned. He wore no Erentz suit as yet. He stood in torn, grimy work trousers and a bedraggled shirt with the inevitable red eye shade holding back his unruly hair. Around his waist was the weighted belt, and there were weights on his shoes for gravity stability. Didn't hurt us much. No. When I get the tube panels in this thing, I'll be finished. It'll take another half hour. Then I'll join you. Where are you stationed? I shrugged. I was at the front window with Johnny. Nothing to do as yet. Snap went back to his work. Well, the longer they delay, the better for us. 
If only your signal got through, Greg. We'll have a rescue ship here in a few hours more. And that if. I turned away. Can't help you, Snap? No, take those shields, he added to one of the men. Take them where? To Grantline. He'll tell you where to put them. The shields were wheeled away on a little cart. I followed it. Grantline sent it to the back exit. No other move from them yet, Johnny? No, all quiet. Snap's almost finished. The brigands presently made another play. A giant heat-ray beam came across the valley. It clung to our front wall for nearly a minute. Grantline got the report from the instrument room. He laughed. That helped rather than hurt us. Heated the outer wall. Frank took advantage of it and eased up the motors. We wondered if Miko knew that. Doubtless he did, for the heat-ray was not used again. Then came a Z-ray. I stood at the window watching it, faint sheen of beam in the dimness. It crept with sinister deliberation along our front wall, clung momentarily to our shielded windows, and pried with its revealing glow into Snap's workshop. Looking us over, Grantline commented, I hope they like what they see. I knew that he did not feel the bravado that was in his tone. We had nothing but small hand weapons, heat rays, electronic projectors, and bullet projectors, all for very short-range fighting. If Miko had not known that before, he could at least make a good guess at it after the careful Z-ray inspection. With his ship down there two miles away, we were powerless to reach him. It seemed that Miko was now testing all his mechanisms. A light flare went up from the dome peak of the ship. It rose in a slow arc over the valley and burst. For a few seconds, the two-mile circle of crags was brilliantly illuminated. I stared, but I had to shield my eyes against the dazzling, actinic glare. And I could see nothing. Was Miko making a Z-ray photograph of our interiors? We had no way of knowing. He was testing his short-range projectors now. With my eyes again accustomed to the normal earthlight in the valley, I could see the stabs of electronic beams, the Martian paralyzing rays and heat beams. They darted out like flashing swords from the rocks near the ship. Then the whole ship and the crater wall behind it seemed to shift sideways as a Benson curve light spread its glow about the ship, with a projector curve beam coming up and touching the window through which I was peering. Haljan, come look at these damn girls. Commander, shall I stop them? They'll kill themselves, or kill us, or smash something. We followed the man into the building's broad central corridor. Anita and Venza were riding a midget platform. Anita in her boyish black garb, Venza with a flowing white Venus robe. They lay on the tiny six-foot-long oblong of metal, one manipulating its side shields, the other at the controls. As we arrived, the platform came sliding down the narrow confines of the corridor, lurching, barely missing a door projection, up to the low vaulted ceiling, then down to the floor. It sailed over our heads, rising over us as we ducked. Anita waved her hand. Grantline gasped. By the infernal! I shouted, Anita, stop! But they only waved at us, skimming down the length of the corridor, seeming to avoid a smash a dozen times by the smallest margin of chance, stopping miraculously at the further end, hanging poised in mid-air, wheeling, coming back, undulating up and down. Grantline clung to me. 
by the gods of the airways. In spite of my astonished horror, I could not but share Grantline's admiration. Three or four other men were watching. The girls were amazingly skillful, no doubt of that. There was not a man among us who could have handled that gravity platform indoors, not one who would have had the brash temerity to try it. The platform landed with the grace of a hummingbird at our feet, the girls dexterously balancing so that it came to rest swiftly without the least bump. I confronted them. Anita, what are you doing? She stood up, flushed and smiling. Practicing. What for? Venza's roguish eyes twinkled at me. Her hands went to her slim hips with a gesture of defiance. She asked, Are you speaking for yourself or the commander? I ignored her. What for? Because we're good at it, Anita retorted. Better than any of you men. If you should need us, we're ready. We won't, I said shortly. But if you should... Venza put in. If Snap and I hadn't come for you, you wouldn't be here, Greg Halgen. I didn't notice you were so horrified to see me holding that shield up over you. It silenced me. She added, Commander, let us alone. We won't smash anything. Grantline laughed. I hope you won't. A warning call took us back to the front window. The brigand's searchlight was again being used. It swept slowly along the length of the cliff. Its circle went down the cliff steps to the valley floor and came sweeping up again. Then it went up to the observatory platform at the summit above us then over to the ore sheds. We had no men outside, if that's what the brigands wanted to determine. The search beam presently vanished. It was replaced immediately by a Z-ray, which darted at once to our treasure sheds and clung. That stung Grantline into his first action. We flung our own Z-ray down across the valley. It reached the brigand ship and the blurred interior of the cabins. Try the search beam, Frank. The Z-ray went off. We gazed down our searchlight, which clung to the dome of the distant enemy vessel. We could see movement there. The telescope, Grantline ordered. The dynamos hummed. The telescope finder glowed and clarified. On the deck of the ship, we saw the brigands working with the assembling of tiny ore carts. A deck landing port was open. The ore carts were being carried out through a port lock and down a landing incline and on the rock outside we saw several of the carts, tiny rail sections, and the section of an ore chute. Miko was unloading his mining apparatus. He was making ready to come up for the treasure. The discovery, startling as it was, nevertheless, was far overshadowed by an imperative danger alarm from our main building. Brigands were outside on our ledge. Miko's search beam, sweeping the ledge a moment before, had carefully avoided revealing them. It had been done just for that purpose. No doubt, to make us feel sure the ledge was unoccupied, and thus to guard against our own light making the search. But there was a brigand group close outside our walls. By the merest chance, the radiating glow from our search ray had shown the helmeted figures scurrying for shelter. Grantline leaped to his feet. We rushed to the rear port exit, which was nearest us. The giant bloated figures had been seen running along the outside of the connecting corridor in this direction. But before we ever got there, a new alarm came. A brigand was crouching at a front corner of the main building. His hydrogen heat torch 
had already opened a rift in the wall. End of chapter 34 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas